Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you that you've given us your word. You have not left us to guess or estimate about what we may need to do to know you or cling to you or find salvation from our sin. We praise you that you've sent your Holy Spirit into our lives, drawn us to faith in Christ through the ministry of your word, and that you continue to uphold us, encourage us, guide us, convict us, refresh us by the ministry of your word. So come again, Holy Spirit, and do it for us tonight. We thank you for this day, a day filled with your word. Come and apply it to our hearts yet again for the sake of Christ and the glory of his name. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32, our text is verse, beginning in verse 15 down through 29. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother, and his companion, and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about three thousand men of the people fell. Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one 
at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of our God will endure forever. Amen. You know, sin is not something that we especially enjoy talking about. I've already told you, I'm sure, that you know, the, the word sin occurs some ten or so times in Exodus 1 through 31, but it occurs at least 11 times in Exodus 32 through 34. It's not much spoken of until we get to this chapter we're in now, and now it, it, it has not ceased of being spoken of. Sin is this horrible, wicked thing that we have received from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Where once we were inclined toward God, now it is not simply that we are indifferent to Him, but because of the fall into sin, we are actually disinclined from Him. And as we consider the text tonight, I want to begin by asking you this question. How do you, how do you deal with your sin when it's been made known to you? You know, all these things that we think and we say and we do that go against God, that, that fly in the face of His law and His righteousness and His holiness. Um, all, all that fails to meet God's righteous requirements for His creatures How do you deal with sin when it's made known to you? You know, it's, it's, it happens regularly in our life as a part of God's people. Your sin is shown to you in various ways. I was thinking about this and making notes, and the very first thing, this is no offense at all to my wife, but marriage is the first place that, that I think about. You know, it, you don't have to live for somebody in an intimate way like that for very long before they go, listen, there's something that's really bothering me about you and about the way you are, about the things you do and the way you talk. I mean, you, you could go on and on and on, right? And I don't mean to make light of it. I think the Lord has given us marriage so that we might be sanctified and be shown our sin. As a child, often your sin is, is pointed out to you by your parents. Sometimes it's disciplined. And then there's that strange thing that you don't expect and, and you don't know it's coming until you're actually there as a father or a mother where you get glimpses of your own sin when you go to discipline your children for their sin. When you're giving a, a spanking for the very thing that you did that same day. Oftentimes, our sin is made known to us under the ministry of the Word week in and week out. The text says something, the preacher says something, and the Holy Spirit takes it and, and pricks your heart so that you know, oh yes, I have that in me. What do you do with it when it's been made known to you? Through the Word, or through your husband, or your wife, or your son, or your daughter, your mom, or your dad. Some, sometimes it's a relationship with a friend. Sin comes up and it's discussed and you realize a fault that you have. 
somehow in your life, sin becomes clear to you, what do you do? You know, some of, some of us like to try to sweep it under the rug as quickly as possible. I can just pretend that this didn't happen. Or we minimize it. That's not as bad as people may think it is. It's not as bad as so-and-so says it is. We generalize it. Well, the whole world sins like that. Maybe you agonize over it. Maybe it haunts you. Maybe you think that that you can make up for it in some way so that the guilt will disappear. Israel, as Moses said to Aaron, Israel has sinned greatly against the Lord their God. You remember just back to the beginning of the chapter when Moses was slow, or were perhaps slower to come down from the mountain than the people preferred They traded in their old mediator. They traded in their old God for new ones. They got Aaron and a golden bull. Remember? Moses is told up on the mountain of their sin by the Lord, and he he pleads with the Lord. He begs the promises of God, the mercy of God, not to, to wipe away the whole nation. And the Lord hears him and relents from this disaster he intended. And in the passage here tonight, Moses has come down from that meeting with the Lord and he goes to war against the sin of the people. He goes to war against the sin of the people. Don't think for a moment that Moses is surprised by what he sees. We'll talk about the tablets in a moment. He's not surprised. The Lord told him what was going on. He goes down expecting to find what he finds. He's, he's not acting rashly here. Moses, in this passage, is clear-headed. And, and precise in his response to the people's idolatry. None of this is on a whim. He's doing this very intentionally. What he walks through is thoughtful and intentioned, even commanded by the Lord, as he makes known there towards the end of our passage. In his righteous anger, Moses shows us the proper and godly way of responding to sin. We go to war. We battle against it. We fight. We strive. We put it to death. Look at 17. They're they're towards the beginning. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's noise of war in the camp. Remember, Joshua wasn't at the top of the mountain. He was somewhere in the middle waiting for Moses to come back down. He didn't hear God's explanation of what was going on in the camp. He hears noise and wonders what it could be. He supposes maybe an enemy has attacked. No, Moses says it's, it's not an attack, but there is something bad going on. You see 18. He said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory. It's not the sound of the cry of defeat but it is the sound of singing. It's it's not victory. It's not defeat. The people are making war with the Lord. They have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling an animal. And the sound of singing points to their hearts seeking after something besides their covenant God. The sounds Joshua heard were sounds of revelry and idolatry at play. 
in the camp of the Israelites. This whole account, this whole account is a war. Maybe a little ironic to say that, given that Joshua says, do I hear a war? Well, not the war that he's thinking about, but there is a war going on in the camp. Moses goes down here to do battle on the Lord's behalf. He battles the idol. He battles Aaron. He battles the people. And in each place, Moses shows us the proper and godly way of responding to sin. We we go to war against it. So here's three points if you're if you're a note-taking individual. If we battle sin, we must see the offense of it. Secondly, if we will battle sin, we must repent of it. And thirdly, if we will battle sin, we must do so with courage and boldness. We must see the offense of sin, we must repent of sin, we must fight with courage and boldness. So firstly here, look, at, look down at 19. If, if we will battle sin as God's people, we must see the offense of it. Verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancings, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So Moses comes down and he sets his eyes on what the Lord has already described to him. He sees the calf and he sees, in the original there's actually a plural there on the word dancing. He sees the dancings, sort of a a way of speaking about it indignantly. Um, He sees what's described earlier in the chapter. Just flip back, um, maybe just on the same page for you. Verse 6 describes what the people were doing. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Back in verse 6, you see, when you know, what do you rise up early for? Some of you crazy people rise up early to go running don't know what's chasing you but you know i think you can sleep sometimes if you want to we rise up early for the things that we love some of us will rise early to be with the lord and to to seek him in prayer and by reading of the scriptures right we rise early for things that are important to us so don't miss that in verse six when it says that they rose up early the next day to engage in what not in devotion to yahweh but in idolatry of the bull they were eager to give themselves away to a foreign deity of their own making. And the end of verse 6, where it says that they, they, they sat down to eat and drink and then they rose up to play, is a rather timid translation. It probably is speaking to some kind of sexual immorality there at the end of verse 6. And I told you there in 19, that word dancings is a way to speak indignantly about what they're doing, about the extent to which they have prostituted themselves out to this foreign God that they have devised. And at the, at the sight of this revelry and the debauchery, Moses' anger burns hot. You know, and, and in a vacuum, we might read that and say, well, Moses is getting heated. Moses really needs to slow down a little bit. Except that Moses' anger burned hot with the same language that the Lord's anger burned hot in verse 10. Moses is righteously angry just like God. 
He's not angry. You know, we, we would go down the mountain and be so upset that the people had forgotten us. I was your leader, and you've forgotten me, and you've traded me out for my brother. You've gotten a different God that I don't recognize. I'm just so upset that, that I'm not welcome here anymore. Moses isn't upset about them forgetting him. He's righteously angry that they have forgotten the Lord. Matthew Henry says, It becomes us to be cool in our own cause, but warm in God's cause. I'd be happy for the people to forget me, Moses says. But they are not permitted to forget their God. And his anger burns hot. He is rightfully angry that the God of Israel has been offended by his people, that he has been forgotten by his chosen people. The merciful, covenant-making Lord has been cast aside for a golden bull. Moses should be angry, shouldn't he? It's proper for him to be angry. And so he breaks the tablets. You can go back to the beginning of the passage and see this description of the tablets. We've already gotten some description of the tablets. The two tablets, this is verse 15, the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back. 16, the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. That word engraved is the same word that we would use for, for plowing a field. They were really engraved into the tablets. Now God handed Moses, not, not, not words to write down, but he actually handed Moses tablets upon which there was already writing. The description there at the beginning is meant to emphasize the great loss as they shatter into pieces at the foot of the mountain. Moses didn't trip. He didn't stumble. You know, we, we maybe humorously like to sort of paint this picture of Moses comes down and he sees what's going on and he just loses his, his footing and the, the tablets spill out of his hands. No, this is a judgment of God upon the people. Moses may have been going down intending to break the tablets. Why? Because the people had broken the covenant that God had made with them, that they had agreed to with him. They had turned quickly aside from the way that the Lord had commanded. And so Moses, he says it in Deuteronomy, I cast the tablets down before your eyes at the foot of the mountain. Maybe next to the very place where the people had vowed submission to God, he breaks the tablets of their covenant as a declaration of the heinousness and offensiveness of their sin and idolatry. And there's no other way to say it at this point. Then the weirdest thing in the whole world happens. <laughs> Moses burns up the bull and grind downs the remnants of it and gives it to the people to drink. Right? Any word but drink, we might not be surprised, you know, to drink. If you want homework, go read Numbers 5 tonight. It's the only other place in Scripture where, where dust is made to be drunken, drunk. An adulterous woman drinks dust in her water and it proves her innocence or guilt. It's a kind of a strange thing. 
that we only see in a couple of places. First notice this before we deal with their drinking of it. Don't miss how easily their so-called God is destroyed and brought to nothing. He burned it, he ground it, he tossed it on the water and they drank it down and it's gone. It's gone. It, it couldn't help itself. Moses reduces the statue to ash, uh, to dust, and one man says, that it may be as near nothing as could be. But why make them drink it? In my opinion, most commentators are not good at answering that question. But good old John Calvin has something for us. Calvin says about this act of having them drink the dust of the idol. He says, this then was a kind of cautery. Uh, cautery is just an old word for, for an implement or a tool that would cauterize something, right? This then was a kind of, of cauterizer, whereby they, that is Israel, might feel that the disgrace of such foul idolatry not only cleaved to their skin, but was fixed deep in their very bowels. I want you to think all the way through about what happens when you drink something. It, it, it just it's disappeared. It's got to go somewhere. Calvin carries the thought along. He says, For thus also was their shame enforced upon them when they admitted the substance of their God into their belly to be soon afterwards ejected with their excrements. Therefore, they were compelled to drink and to void a part of their God in order that their superstition might be the more offensive to them. How silly you are, Moses says. Now eat, drink your God and go get rid of him when the time comes. I don't mean to be vulgar, but you need to understand what Moses is trying to communicate to the people of how foolish and stupid they have been to create a God like this to worship. They're drinking of the dust of this idol is an acknowledgement that they are guilty of violating the covenant. It's an acknowledgement on their part that they have sinned against the Lord. It's an acknowledgement of their great offense against their God and how heinous it is. But Moses is battling sin. And what is he declaring here about it? That sin is offensive to the Lord. And it ought also to be offensive to his people. It is offensive to God and it ought also to be offensive to his people. You know, to ever presume that anyone or anything beside the Lord ought to be worshipped is nothing but offense to him. What does it say to God when we choose to give our worship anything else when he's the one who's created us he's the one who sustains us for those who belong to him through faith in christ he's the one who has redeemed us what does it say to him when we will seek after other things and isn't this really what all sin is about you know sin is not just a matter of, of disobedience now that's significant there are do these and don't do these in scripture and they're important and you should obey them as God's people. But 
sin at its fundamental level, sin at the very bottom, is a declaration, God, you are not God. And I will live however I want to live because I'm my own ruler and I'm my own king. What a silly thing to say when we're actually made of dust formed by the hand of God with His very breath breathed into us. And so when we sin, we are declaring that though God has made us and though He sustains us and though for believers He has redeemed us, we declare that He's not worthy of our allegiance, that He's not worthy of our obedience or our love or our affection, that we're going to give all these things to, to, to things that are passing away, to things that can be ground up and drunk and excreted. It's foolishness wickedness. Sin is heinous and wrong. It is offensive to the Lord and beloved it ought to be offensive to you too. If we will do battle against sin we must see the offense of it to our holy God. Secondly we will battle sin, we must repent of it. Here's something we struggle with. Simply naming sin as offensive or wrong or saying that I did something I shouldn't have done is a good start. Leaving sin is something entirely other. Saying that it's offensive is good, but we must turn away from it. We must repent of it. So having disposed of the idol in such a dramatic way, Moses turns, don't forget, to his brother. He turns to Aaron. Look at 21. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? Just about the question itself. You know, this people, we may read a sort of... um well, much like the rest of the passage, sort of indignant toward the people themselves. There's a compelling argument made by one commentator that Moses is actually speaking with compassion about the people when he speaks of them in 21. Because as he speaks to Aaron, he speaks to Aaron as the leader of the people who led them into sin. And so he's not compassionate for Aaron who's subjected himself to evil people. He's compassionate for the people who were led by a man gone astray. What is this people? What have they done to you that you've brought such great sin upon them? You know, the question itself, before we even think about his answer, the question highlights Aaron's role in this whole affair. He is the one who led the people into sin. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, there's a, there's a comment that we don't have in Exodus 32 where Moses writes, the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And Moses has to intercede and plead for the life of his brother. Now, the, the Lord spares him, we know. Aaron was not innocent. You know, we laugh at the end of 24, which I'll read here in just a moment, but Aaron's not being clever. He's being careless. He's being stupid being a poor leader of the people in the stead that his brother left him in. Notice that there is no comment on his response. Moses asks the question in 21, 22 through 24, Aaron responds to him 
And then in 25, Moses moves on to deal with the people. There's no comment because the inadequacy of Aaron's response speaks volumes. It's a case study in how not to talk about your sin and how not to repent and confess it. Let's look at it. 22. Aaron said, he's answering his brother, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You you know the people. They're set on evil. They said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. He's just quoting from early in the chapter there. That's exactly what they say to him. Verse 24 is new material. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. It is funny. It is. Friends, this is how you minimize sin. This is how you generalize sin. This is how you pretend like sin's not that big of a deal. Aaron tried to blame the people. (laughs) Moses, Moses, settle down, brother. You know these people. You know how they have themselves set on evil. Calm down. If that weren't enough for him to blame shift onto these people, then he blame shifts onto an inanimate object. The end of 24, uh, they gave me the gold and I threw it into the the furnace and out came this calf. It's foolish. It's, It's, how many times can we say stupid in one sermon? It's just stupid. Because it sounded all familiar. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The Lord God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Listen to what Adam says. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. At least Aaron comes by his stupidity, honestly. Aaron simply follows here the example of our father Adam in showing us exactly how not to understand sin, how not to talk about sin when the time comes. As much as it hurts, as much as your remaining corruption desires to stay hidden, if you will do battle against sin as one of God's people, you you must not downplay your iniquity. You must not excuse your transgression. You must not shift the blame or generalize or do what Adam does. Where, yeah, he blames the woman, but do you catch it there that he actually blames God? You gave me this woman who gave me the fruit to eat. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It's not simply enough to be a sinner 
to receive the mercy of God. It is to be a sinner and confess your sin to receive the mercy of God. Go More homework. Go read Psalm 32. And tell me if you resonate, resonate with what David says in, in verses 3 through 5. He speaks about his sin and about keeping silent, but then eventually confessing his sin. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We said it in the first place. To do battle against sin, you must recognize that it is offensive to the Lord. And now here we will say, if you will go to battle against your sin, you must drag it out into the light and expose it is the only way to put it to death. Hidden sin will kill you. Drag it into the light. Do not be like Aaron. Do not be like Adam. Instead, repent. Confess your sin. Come to the Lord. Tell Him what you've done. Where you have offended. Sin is dangerous. It's odious. It's filthy. It is contrary to the the holy nature and the righteous law of God. Aaron was vague. And do you see? So really unable to repent. If you don't know what you've done, how can you turn away from it? If you're unwilling to say where you've fallen, how can you walk in newness of life? How can you hate that which you refuse to name and identify? If we will battle sin, we must repent of it. just add a comment here it's not just recognizing the heinousness of sin that drives us to repentance but our confession of faith and catechisms rightly rightly teach that repentance yes begins with an acknowledgement of the danger and the filthiness and the odiousness of our sin and the fact that it's contrary to God's law and contrary to the very nature of our God but we join with that an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ Yes, I should be damned. But oh, the mercy that God has for me as I trust in Christ by faith. And we can come and and turn from our sin toward new obedience because we know that our Father in heaven has received us. See that sin's offensive. Repent of sin. Thirdly, now the idol's gone. His brother's been chastised and Moses turns his attention to the people and challenges them. And we see here that if we will do battle with sin, we must be bold in it, courageous in it. Look at 25. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, that is, they lost restraint, and Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Here's the question. Who is on the Lord's side? 
Now, John Mackey makes a comment here. He says the question that, that Moses asks is that of fundamental loyalties. Mackey writes, Moses does not call for those who had never deviated from loyalty to the Lord by worshiping the golden calf. Rather, Moses calls for those who, no matter what they had done, were now prepared to acknowledge the authority of their king. It is here an act of amnesty, but one that calls for immediate decision. It wasn't just those who may have opposed the golden calf who were allowed to answer and come to Moses' side. The question is for the whole congregation. Who is on the Lord's side? And anyone could have come. Anyone could have crossed over to the gate and stood with Moses. But what happens? Look at 27. The Levites come. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from, the, from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and 3,000 men died. Presumably the Levites walk in, in the camp inquiring of those they encounter after their repentance. They come to someone, they say, have you repented of following after this golden calf? Have you turned back to the Lord? And it can be easy for us to sort of characterize this as, as primitive and, and brutal and characterize God as bloodthirsty and cruel. But we must understand what's at stake. The Lord's commands are not to be trifled with. The consequences for sin are not to be downplayed. If the people would not hear Moses' call for repentance as he, as he proclaims, Who's for the Lord? Now to me you come. If they will not respond, then they will bear the consequence. You see a little glimmer of God's grace and mercy there in 20, uh, 28. It's a fairly small number of people. There, there may have been two million Israelites 3,000 men, even if that's sort of a round number that they're hitting, it's not that many people. This is, this is a, a picture of God's grace as he responded to the pleadings of Moses from earlier in the chapter. But verse 29 is where the Levites make their, their main point for us. Moses said today, he's speaking to the Levites, today you have been obtained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day, ordained, not obtained. For their service, the Levites have been specially blessed to serve the Lord in particular ways. And we don't have time to talk about it. It's, it's further on in the Pentateuch. This is what Matthew Henry says. Those that are to minister about holy things must be not only sincere and serious, but warm and zealous, bold and courageous, for God and godliness. Thus all Christians must forsake father and mother and prefer the service of Christ and His interest far before their nearest and dearest relations. For if we love our relations better than Christ, we are not worthy of Him. You see how strong the Levites were. They killed their sons and their brothers for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of His holiness and His majesty and the purity of His people. If we will battle sin, we must do so with courage and boldness. Do not be afraid 
to put sin to death. Do not be afraid to cancel you know, all the subscription services that stream smut into your living room. Don't be afraid to stop hanging out with certain types and kinds of people. Don't be afraid to stop buying too many bottles of whatever it is that inebriates you to the point of ignoring the Lord. Don't be afraid of, of canceling social media and not giving in to that God that you worship on your phone. Don't be afraid, beloved, to, to put sin to death because you know that life with God is so much better. So much better. Don't be afraid. The world will think less of you. Yes, when you look more like Christ. But you will be happy and you will be holy and your Savior will be pleased. Be bold, be courageous in godliness. He, our Lord, is worthy of all of our pains and diligences to seek after Him. See here that that God's people, we must fight with sin but it's not in our own strength. It's not in our own strength. As our King, Christ is the one who has conquered sin. It's that famous um, title of one of John Owen's works. That we have found the death of death in the death of Christ. That He, he died on the cross so that we don't have to, is what we say in our house. Jesus died so that I don't have to. He died the death to sin that we deserve so that we can live forever in God. We were dead in our trespasses, but we have been made alive in Christ and we are seated with Him in heavenly places. Not just are we saved because Christ has dealt with sin, but now He has sent the Holy Spirit to war against our flesh. And it's by the Holy Spirit's work that we are able to battle in these practical ways, in these clear ways that Moses has stated here for us. And I just want to close with a little bit of encouragement. You know, it is terrifying to think about fighting sin. It's a powerful enemy. Our confession of faith in chapter 13 talking about sanctification and the work that the Holy Spirit does in us as God's people. It says sanctification is in the whole man, yet it's imperfect in their life, in this life. That there's still abiding in us some remnants of corruption in every part from which arise a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. This is the Christian life is to walk in this world and to constantly feel the tug of of leaning away from God and of leaving Him for something more tangible and temporal and sensory. Confession of Faith 13.3, the next paragraph, is so encouraging. In which war, that spirit against the flesh, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail. Are you in that type of time right now, Christian? where it seems like your flesh is prevailing over the Spirit. Sometimes it seems like the flesh may prevail, like the corruption may prevail. Yet, say our divines, through the continual support of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Your encouragement to fight sin is in the sure seed of faith that the Spirit has planted in your heart. That those God has called and made alive will never fall away from Him. And so if you are His, you have nothing to fear. 
And he calls you to fight in the power of the Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, if you are in him, that Spirit is at work in you, beloved. Be encouraged to fight the good fight of the faith. Amen. Let's pray. Father, for the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, come now, send your Holy Spirit to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.